0: Hello, welcome to the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. in Southern York County, Pennsylvania. You can join our morning live stream on Facebook or YouTube. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury. You can find more information about us at gfcshrewsbury.org. We are so excited to bring you this message today, and it is our hope that you will come to know and believe Jesus Christ more fully through it.
1: Good morning, Grace family. How you feeling? How you feeling? You look good. You look good. It's been a while. Um, So glad to be here with you this morning. Um, Some of you may be like uh, familiar with me, may know who I am. Some of you don't know who I am. I'm just the thicker, more handsome version of Phil Cook. Um, Everybody but Jess Cook would agree with that. I think Phil might even agree with that. Um, No, I'm just kidding. But hey, it's so good to be with you this morning. I promise you this word of God has more important things to say than I do. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. I mean, I love this series that you guys have been in here. I've listened to the messages online. Um, I love the book of John. It's so good. It talks about Jesus, which he's like my favorite person on the planet. Uh, I love him a lot. I hope you do too. Um, But this series titled Knowing Jesus, simple title, right? Seems Christian, but can we just talk about it for a moment? The most important thing you could ever do in your entire life is know Jesus. It's not a catchy sermon title. It's the ambition of the Christian life. It should be the goal for you this morning better than making more money, having a beautiful family, getting a 401k, making it home today. Whatever it may look like for you, the the greatest goal in your life should be to know Jesus. Jesus. And so that's what the book of John is all about. That's the goal of this series. As you're turning uh, in the book of John to John 2, 1 through 12, the the, the kind of flow of the book of John, the flow of this series is we want to know, believe, and live. Know, believe, and live. And and can we just talk about that for a moment, to to know Jesus, not know about him. Man, man, if we're honest, I'm just going to start guns blazing this morning, all right? We've settled for knowing about Jesus, and a lot of us don't know him. A lot of us claim to know a lot about him, but don't know him intimately. I know a lot about certain famous people. I know a lot about LeBron James, never met the dude, all right? Jesus is not concerned about how much you know about him. He's concerned, do you know him intimately? That word know, we see in Genesis, Adam and Eve knew one another, and then they had a child. It's intimate. It's personal. It's personal. That's the type of know that Jesus wants us to have with him, not, not sexual, but intimate. God wants us to know him, to know what he's like, to know what he sounds like. Do you know the voice of Jesus? That, that's the goal this morning is that we would know him, not just know stuff about him. And that that would lead to believe, belief in him. Not head knowledge, not intellectual assent, but action. We're going to talk about belief a lot today. But it's not just what you know in your head about Jesus or what you believe in your head about him. It's what your life begins to show. What do your actions reveal about how much you believe in Jesus and that you would live, not survive, but thrive. Jesus does not just want you to survive this life. Man, he wants you to thrive. Jesus says, his mission statement is, I've come to give you life and life abundant." And then for some of us, we've settled for survival. And I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus has called you to thrive, not to get to heaven someday, although that's important. Did you understand, that, do, you, do you understand this church that, that some of us in the church have settled for just getting to heaven one day, punching our ticket and getting there, and Jesus died, rose again, so that heaven could get into you. Jesus wants the culture of heaven to invade your heart, to take over, to renovate, to do some stuff, to change you so you can be an agent for him now. Man, don't just wait until heaven. It's here today. And so what John is trying to do, what we're trying to do in this series, man, is to help us know Jesus intimately so that we can believe in him fully, that we can live a life to the full, that we can live a life here and now intentionally on mission for him. So let's go for it, church. Amen? Amen? Awesome. Without further ado, let's look at the word of God. John chapter 2, 1 through 12 says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. That's Mary. It doesn't tell us her name, but we know it's Mary. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's important. We're going to get back to that in a moment. In fact, I think the, the text is on the screen for us. There we go. All right, pick it up in verse four. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. This is why Jesus tells us all of this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Grace, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, it's so clear that you're in the room. We don't have to invite you here because you already live here. You live in our hearts. You don't live in this room per se, but you live in the hearts of people in this room. You live in the hearts of people online. And so, Holy Spirit, you're here. Thank you for being here. We invite you to take over. We invite you to have your way. We invite you to move freely. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make this word make sense this morning that you would illuminate the truth, that it would change our hearts and change our lives. God, I pray for every heart that's tuning in this morning, that they would hear your word, that they would feel your presence, and that for those who don't know you, that they would give their lives to you. And that for those of us who do know you, that we would put our trust deeper into you today. God, I pray right now that you would just begin to reveal in the hearts of everybody what it is that we're holding on to today. What it is that we're white-knuckling today, feeling like we have to have Jesus plus something else. That, that maybe your blood isn't enough, Jesus. You say it is, but, but we don't believe it enough. And so I just pray right now that you'd begin to release our grip on the things that we hold on to. That you would begin to remind us that your blood is enough. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in this place today. That exactly what happened when you, Jesus, turned that water into wine, where your glory was manifest, glory be manifested today. that it would rain down on our heads and in our hearts, that it would change us, that we would not be able to leave this time without encountering the living God. And that we would not just see your glory, talk about how awesome it is and tweet about it, but that it would actually lead us to believe. To believe in you, Jesus. Help us make sense of what that even means. We need you, Jesus. We trust you. And all those people said, amen, amen, amen. Here's the goal this morning. It's for Jesus to show us his glory through overwhelming grace. This is what Jesus has a PhD in. This is what he loves to do. He loves to show his glory through overwhelming grace. Let's continue it this morning, church. I think some of us just believe that Jesus wants to give us a tad bit of grace because that's the name of this church or because we know it's a Christian cliche concept, right? That, uh, you know, Jesus can can put a little dab of grace on there to, to make things feel a little bit better and be perceived as better on the outside. But the reality is Jesus has no desire to just give you some grace. He wants to overwhelm you with grace. That's the whole point of this story. That's the whole point of this book of John. As we start to dive into the miracles of Jesus, he's not trying to just get their attention. He's trying to floor them. He's trying to knock them out. He's trying to wreck their hearts to help them see their desperate need for him and just how awesome he is and willing he is to fulfill that need. And so wherever you're at this morning, if you love Jesus and you're on fire for him and you feel like there's no deeper level you can get to, he wants to floor you. I promise you, there's no box you can put him in. He loves to blow out of them. If you're in here this morning and you feel like you have faith in Jesus and you're just not feeling it today, if it's mundane, if it's dry, if it's the weather outside's frustrating, guess what? There's more for you. He wants to floor you. And even if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, you don't like him, you don't believe he's God, he's not concerned with that. He still wants to floor you. That's what he does. He takes people who have no faith, a ton of doubt, and says, watch me do my thing. And he shows up, shows off, and people come to know him. And so this morning, I just want you to know wherever you're at, that's the goal, that his glory would be made known because there's nothing better in all of creation, all of the universe than the glory of God. And so when it's shown, what it does is it overwhelms us with his grace. What is grace? It's the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Check that out, church. Jesus wants to overwhelm you with the favor of God this morning. Who wants some of that? I, I want. Give me a double portion, yes and Amen put the extra guac on it like I'm at Chipotle I want more do you want more this morning this is the goal of God today that he would overwhelm us with his grace and this story shows us him doing that let's look at these first three verses together actually before we get there we'll go back to this slide real quick let's let's look at these first three verses because this sets up some really unique and interesting context for us to understand what Jesus is doing here verses one through three on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana, that's important, in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said to him, they have no wine. So let's, let's look at the, the canvas upon which this beautiful painting is being portrayed, all right? We, we got to look at the story that's going on here. There's a few things we have to point out. One, we know this because we've already read the story. This is the first of Jesus's miracles, there's seven that the book of John lay out, and this is the first one Jesus does. Now now we have to ask the question, why? Why would Jesus start here? Or maybe why would John start here? Why would John write this uh, kind of narrative or this story, this miracle first? Well, it says it was the first, so that makes sense. John, you are chronological. You wanna start with number one, got it. So now let's move on to the next question. Why would Jesus make this his first miracle? Like if we're honest, like let's just be honest this morning, it doesn't seem as cool as walking on water. It doesn't seem as impactful as raising dead people to life. It doesn't seem as miraculous as feeding 5,000 people with just two fish and five loaves of bread. Like, I read this, I'm like, really? I get this one? Like, it's just being real. Come on. Like, what? But here's the thing there's so much depth to this story that it's mind blowing. But we have to understand the context, we have to understand a Jewish wedding. We have to realize that Jesus makes this his number one uh, revelation of his glory on purpose. Jesus is the most intentional being ever. And so he starts here for a reason. He wants to reveal something about himself that changes everything. So it's the first of his miracles. And, And this is something else to point out. Up to this point, for 30 years, he had lived his life in obscurity. Here's a free point for you this morning. Maybe the best thing for you is to live some life in obscurity. Can I talk to some young folk for a minute? Not like I'm super old, but can I just tell you that maybe instead of trying to get Twitter famous or Instagram famous or trying to make a ton of money or trying to be known, you need to live in a season of, of obscurity. Like the God of the universe saw it so important to live in obscurity, to not be known for 30 years. What makes us think we could try to figure it out at 18? There's something significant and important that happens in that season of obscurity where he's just a carpenter, although he's not just a carpenter. Where he learns about who he is, more importantly, who his father is, what his mission is. Things are solidified. Things are grinded in that help him stay true to his mission. Can I just encourage you, if you're in a season of obscurity, maybe God's not wasting your time. Maybe he's trying to redeem your time. Maybe he's trying to make your time more important. Lean into the obscurity. It doesn't matter how many people know you. If you have a thousand people frowning at you and you have the father smiling, who cares? Who cares? But Jesus lived in obscurity until this point where he begins to, to what I would say, flex his muscles and show the world just who he really is. So then we see that this is happening in Cana. This is a a town close to Nazareth and it's just that a town. It's not a city. It's not like this like suburb area. It's, it would make Shrewsbury look like a thriving metropolis. It's tiny. It's, it's slightly insignificant. It's really just this small place where kind of everybody knows everybody, right? It's like a town within a town within a, like it's small. Why would Jesus start in this small, obscure town? Because he likes to do things the way the world doesn't. Because he likes to go to people that everyone else has written off. Canaan was written off, and so he starts here. And then we see it's at a wedding. Man, a wedding, a Jewish wedding specifically, was so symbolic, so significant, so spiritual. We're gonna learn this morning, real quick, the context of a Jewish wedding. We're gonna learn the ABCs of a Jewish wedding. Literally, there's three significant parts of a Jewish wedding that help us understand what was happening here. And I want you to lean in and pay attention. If you're familiar with Christianity, you may pick up on it. If you're not familiar with Christianity, this is exactly how God wants to treat you. The Bible says that Christians are the bride of Christ and that he is the bridegroom. So everything you're gonna hear me talk about in this wedding is what God is doing with you and me and us as the collective church. So check it out, the first one, A, arrangement. Arrangement In biblical times, the father selected the bride for his son. God the father has chosen you. Before the foundations of the world, he came after you. We also see that in an arranging of a marriage, the bridegroom's family paid a price for the bride. God has paid the ultimate price for you with his own life. We're not even in the ceremony yet, y'all. This is just the arrangement. So this is what happens. And then that is what kind of begins to get the wheel turning for this thing called Marriage. Then we enter into betrothal. Maybe a more common term for us, engagement. But betrothal was pretty significant. When the marriage had been arranged, the couple would enter into the betrothal period, usually lasting a year and much more binding than the engagement of today. It was a legal act. It's pretty intense. During that year, the man prepared the home for his bride. You know where Jesus is right now? Like right now, right now? He ain't here, he's in heaven. He's preparing a place for you. He's building a mansion on his father's house specifically for you. What's your favorite color? He's painting right now in your house. You like shiplap? He's got you. Like you like colonial? That's fine. You want a townhome? He's cool with it. Surround sound? He's got you. He's preparing a place in heaven for you. The same way a bridegroom would go off for a year and prepare a place for his bride. The betrothal was established in one of two ways: it was either a pledge in the presence of witnesses, together with a sum of money, or written statement in a ceremony with a concluding benediction. That's what he did on the cross. With all the witnesses gathered, he shed his blood to show you, you're mine. I want you. You're mine. I'm not hiding it. I'm putting it all out there. I'm exposing everything about who I am. I'm being vulnerable to show you I'm serious. In the New Testament times, the parents of the bride and groom, they met together along with others as witnesses, while the groom gave the bride a gold ring or other valuable item. Then the bride, the, he, he spoke this promise to the bride. He said this, see by this ring, you are set apart from me, according to the law of Moses in Israel. Jesus has done the same for you. He conquered death, rose again, and he came back and said, guess what, my gold ring is much better. His name's Holy Spirit. And you're not just gonna wear him on your ring finger, you're gonna put him in your heart, and he's gonna change everything about you. And Jesus has given you the best engagement gift ever, and it's called his spirit. And he lives within you, and he gives you power, and he's what gives you the ability to turn this world upside down. And I'll take that over a 24-carat ring any day. That's the promise that he's given to you. We're in the betrothal period church. He is coming back someday and we're getting ready and he's getting ready and he's doing all the work. He's put the spirit of God within you to remind you when you've lost sight, when you forget, when you doubt, when you don't remember if he loves you, look at the ring. Look at the spirit of God within you and watch him testify to God's faithfulness in you. It's not trying harder. It's just looking more at him. That's the beauty of the Jewish arranged marriage. And and here we are, arrangement, betrothal, and now ceremony. Can I tell you the ceremonies were baller? Look at this. The wedding ceremony began with the bridegroom bringing home the bride from her parents' house to his parental home. So one day, Jesus is going to come take you from earth and get you to heaven, from where you live to where he lives, where his father is at. The bridegroom, accompanied by his friends and singing and music, led a procession through the streets of the town to the bride's home. Along the way, friends who were ready and waiting with their lamps lit would join in the procession, veiled and dressed in beautiful, embroidered clothes and adorned with jewels. The bride, accompanied by her attendants, joined the bridegroom for the procession to his father's house. Listen, the bride and groom were considered royalty. You're not just considered royalty by the blood of Jesus. You are royalty. Do you believe it? Jesus isn't saying, I'm just going to let you be royalty for a week. It's not like, you know, he'll put the crown on and take it back. No, his blood purchased you, makes you royal, and that's who you are right now. And so if someone else is telling you otherwise, especially yourself, just rebuke you or whoever in the name of Jesus. I'm royalty. Y'all say it after me. I'm royalty. royalty. Say it like you mean it. I'm royalty. royalty. That's who Jesus says you are. Don't argue with him. You won't win. (laughs) Flat out. So you're not just considered royalty. You are royalty. Once at the home, the uh, bridal couple sat under a canopy amid the festivals of games and dancing, which lasted an entire week, sometimes longer. Guests praised the newly married couple. Songs of love for the couple graced the festival. Delicious meals and wine filled the home or banquet hall. Ample provision for an elaborate feast was essential. In other words, you needed a lot of stuff because they're about to ball hard. All right? They're about to go all out. So you need a lot of stuff to have a party. Don't run out. That's kind of the, the, the planning a wedding one-on-one. Make sure you have enough stuff. All right? On the first night, or sorry, the bridal couple wore their wedding clothes throughout the week. And on the first night, when the marriage was to be consummated, the two would become one in the most intimate physical act between two humans, one man and one woman, coming together. Y'all catch my drift. That is the ceremony. That is is amazing have you ever been to an awesome wedding before raise your hand if you've been to an awesome wedding right not just like an okay wedding let's be honest there's a difference all right you want to know the best wedding i've ever been to my own it was ballin and i'm not just saying that because i'm biased and and because it was my wedding guys i got married at a place called chateau Alon. that sounds bougie because it is bougie it's the nicest place i've ever been to in my entire life and it's it was elaborate immaculate i mean we had dinner and then sliders What? Come on. I'll go back to that wedding any day. And and just a little bit of wedding advice for those of you who may be planning it. A DJ makes or breaks a wedding. Can I get an amen? Best DJ in the world. He let me come up and start spinning the disc. He let me stand on the speakers. You know, I got all kinds of sweaty and all kinds of crazy. We danced for a long time. But guess what? The wedding maybe lasted six, seven hours. This lasted six to seven days, y'all like all day long, like let's go, let's party. Day one's awesome, we're gonna continue the party, we're gonna keep going. That is what a Jewish wedding would look like. It would make our weddings look silly, child's play. And here we are, Jesus, his first miracle, he's at a wedding. The arrangement has happened, the betrothal has come and gone and here we are at the ceremony. And now we see that there's something happening in the ceremony that should not be happening. Remember the 101 in a Jewish wedding? Don't run out of stuff. And here we go. We see that in the midst of this ceremony, there's no more wine. I read this and be like, "Okay, cool, like party foul. That's not cool. Nobody likes that. It's much deeper. It's much deeper. To understand the the devastating consequences of this, we have to understand an element of kind of the seriousness of the engagement process. If you as a bridegroom did not have enough stuff at the ceremony, what you were portraying to the the bride's family and to that community is you don't have what it takes to provide for your wife. So here's what would happen. There would be shame, ridicule, disappointment embarrassment. In fact, there was several commentaries that say that if you ran out of stuff, you were actually not liable to be sued by the bride's parents. In other words, you were guilty of an offense that was a legal offense that you owed money to kind of pay for. It's not just a party foul where they're looking for a supernatural bartender. That's not what's happening. No, there, there is shame and ridicule and embarrassment happening. There is lack There is clear lack and there's a clear need. Have you ever felt like you were lacking? Have you ever felt like you were lacking something? And I can guarantee you one universal truth that's in this room right now, regardless of where you stand with God or where you stand with anybody else, you felt lack before. You felt like, man, it's just not enough. You felt like, man, there's just something deep in my soul that's not completely content. And maybe you've tried to plan an actual party and you didn't have enough money. Maybe you don't have enough suave. Maybe you don't have the right clothes. Maybe you failed that test or didn't get that job interview. Or maybe you proposed and they said no. Or maybe you entered into marriage and you got divorced and you just feel like, man, for some reason, maybe you parented your kid as well as they could and they walked away from the Lord. And maybe you feel like you tried the best you could at your job and you still got fired. I, I don't know what it is for you, but I guarantee you this, that you felt lack this morning. And put yourself in the place of this bridegroom. Remember that feeling of guilt and shame and ridicule and heartache? Like, we don't want to revisit that, but that's exactly what this bridegroom was going through. Feeling this lack. And yet, Jesus, in the midst of that, what does he want to do? He wants to show his glory through overwhelming grace. In the midst of lack, do you know that's what Jesus wants to do? He doesn't just want to wait till you have it all figured out. He's not waiting for you to get all your ducks in a row or finally get it right to nail the answer on the quiz. No, in the midst of your lack is when he wants to overwhelm you with grace. And that's what he does in this story with the bridegroom Look at it. He comes and he says, Jesus said to this woman, who is his mom, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the sermons, do whatever you he tells you, you may read that and be like, "What in the world? How is that Jesus showing His grace?" That makes no sense. Valid. I thought the same thing, but let's press into to this for just a moment. Jesus is revealing Himself uniquely as the submissive Son. Jesus is revealing Himself as the submissive Son. Look at what's happening here. Jesus, his mom comes to him. Think about it. This is a real situation. This is real time. This is not a fantasy. This is not a child's book. This is real life. There is a wedding in a Jewish culture. There is no more wine. This is embarrassing. Mary knows it. Mary wants to save this bridegroom some embarrassment and runs to her son, who he, she knows, by the way, can do some stuff because she remembered how he was conceived. He may not have performed any miracles yet, but she's like, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the God of the universe told me to bear this son and he was going to save everybody. Maybe he can fix it. Valid, valid thought right? And yet Jesus goes, or or Mary goes to Jesus and says, as any mother would, like out of like concern and care, Jesus, there's no more wine. There's no more wine. It's not like she's trying to tease him into playing some sort of party trick at this festival. It's deep concern, deep care for someone else. And what is Jesus's response? It's very interesting. He says, woman, just, just a little bit of advice. Dudes who have moms, don't call your mom woman. Not, not a good look. Like I'm 28. I'm a grown man. I'll do what I want. I won't call my mom woman. Just flat out. Like I'm gonna get slapped. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just not teenagers. Don't do it. Especially if you live under their roof. It's not a good call. Parents, you're welcome. Um, don't call your wives that either or girlfriends or anybody. Just don't call women women. All right. That's just rude. Okay. You catch my drift. But what is Jesus doing? He, he's, he's not being rude. In this terminology, it would have been more like the equivalent of, like, ma'am, okay? He, he was being polite, but he was being distant. He was trying to intentionally create some distance between him and his mom. And then he goes on to say this, woman, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Once again, he's not being rude, but he is being abrupt. He's not being rude, but he is being abrupt, He's trying to intentionally set some distance between him and his mom. That's why John calls her the mother of Jesus, not Mary. He's trying to show us some some actual intentional distance relationally between him and his mom. Why? Because Jesus doesn't owe anyone anything, even his own mom. See, regardless, we're not really sure why Mary went to Jesus. We don't know the motive. We can't assume that's dangerous. But what we do know is that Jesus wanted to make explicitly clear to his mom and everyone watching that that I don't owe anybody anything. That although I'm the mother, or that Mary is my mother, the father is my father. That God is my father. That that although Mary may be related to me and I may be her son, I'm also the God who runs the whole universe. And so he's intentionally trying to create some distance to show his allegiance to his father. He's not trying to downplay his mom. He's not trying to, to hate on her, but he is trying to rebuke her a little bit because he loves her because he loves her. He's trying to remind her, hey, look, I pledge allegiance to nobody but my dad. Can you say the same thing? Can you honestly say I pledge allegiance to nobody else but my father in heaven? Because that's what Jesus was doing right here. He was trying to tell them, this is who I belong to. How does this apply to us? Well, let me just say it this way. Jesus is not your genie in a bottle. We've all seen Aladdin. We know how it goes. You find the lamp, you rub it, you get the genie who's all powerful, all mighty, all majestic, all yada, yada, yada. But then he's subject to whoever rubbed the lamp. So he's got all this power, but he's in submission to someone who's weaker. Let's be honest. We treat Jesus like that all the time. We talk about how great he is, how powerful he is, how mighty he is, how wonderful he is, how whatever he may be. But then we act as if he's somehow submissive to us. Don't get it twisted. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's the God who runs the whole universe. He spoke things into existence. When's the last time you did that? Like, like He turned water into wine. We're going to get there. You've never done that. Like he's got power. He's got authority. He's got control. And he's not subject to you. And I tell you that for your own good. I tell me that for my own good to remind us who he really is. Because when we treat him like he's not, and we get frustrated with him that he's not acting like we want him to, it's because he's got a bigger plan in place. He's submissive to His Father. He then goes on to say this. My hour has not yet come. Jesus is referring to the hour when he would be crucified on the cross. Check this out, y'all. Jesus is constantly elevating the conversation. Jesus is constantly elevating the conversation. Don't forget, Mary comes to Jesus. Hey, there's no more wine. What's Jesus' response? It's not my time to die yet. What? Jesus, no, no, there's no more wine. I, I know. It's not my time to die yet. He's elevating the conversation. See, Mary's focused on wine. Jesus is focused on his death. What what do we learn in that reality? Well, we learn this, that Jesus is not going to allow the urgent to take over the important. This is another free one right here. Don't let the urgent overtake the important in your life. Don't. Take a lesson from Jesus. Jesus never gets preoccupied with the urgent because he's constantly focused on the important why he frustrated everybody. You realize the most frustrating person on planet earth was Jesus because everybody had these expectations of him because they had these urgent problems. And yet he was so completely aligned with his father that he wasn't willing to get off in the weeds of the urgent because the important was more necessary. And that's what he does. He pledges allegiance to his father alone. He was showing that the important is always better than the urgent He's revealing that he's on mission and that his objective is to please his father alone. He knows why he's sent here. That's why that obscure season was important. He got reminded constantly, this is why you're here. This is what you're called to do. You're called to die for my people. So Jesus right now is making known to Mary and to everyone else that as I start my public ministry, I pledge allegiance to Jesus, or I pledge allegiance to the father alone. And so practically, how do we respond to that? Submit to him. Submit to him. Look at what Mary does. Mary receives the rebuke. And what does she say? Do whatever he tells you. He looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And can I just tell you, that should be Christianity 101, Christianity motto. Like if Christianity had a tagline, that should be it. Hey, we're Christians. We do whatever Jesus tells us to do. We don't live that way, honestly, but that's the way it should be. Jesus is trying to show us through his mother Mary what submission looks like. It's waking up every morning and saying this, Jesus, I want to do whatever you want me to do today. Not with an asterisk, as long as I'm comfortable. As long as it fits within my 24 hour time frame, As long as it helps me get where I want to go in life. As long as I can make money too. As long as I can have more followers on Instagram. No, no, no. I want to do whatever you want me to do today. What if that means losing friends? Do it. What if that means frustrating coworkers, do it. What if that means making yourself and others around you really uncomfortable because you're pledging allegiance to Jesus, whatever. You know what that word whatever means? Whatever, it's not complicated. We try to make it complicated, but it's not, it's whatever. Whatever he's calling you to do, do it. Will you have that attitude with him today. Not not just say with your lips, because that doesn't mean a whole lot, but will your heart be postured in such a way that you would submit to him the way his mother did? And I love this because let's just be real, too, about one of the challenges with uh, Mary in in culture, right, specifically Catholicism. Like Jesus right here shows us why we don't worship Mary. Mary shows us why we don't worship Mary. She says, hey, don't don't bother with the middleman. Go to the source. Mary's not focused on Mary. Mary's focused on her son, Jesus. Do whatever he says, not whatever Mary says. And so this is why in Christianity, we don't worship anybody but the king of the universe, Jesus himself, because even his own mother, who we've often elevated to a place that's unhealthy and and not accurate at all, she herself says, do whatever he says. Submit to him alone. So what does this look like for us? It means that everything falls underneath the lordship of Jesus, Man, if we're just honest, in Christianity, we love Jesus as Savior. We sing about it. We we talk about it. We wear shirts about it. We do all the annoying, weird things that people don't like about it. But here's what we don't like. Him as Lord. We love him as Savior. That's awesome. It's great and wonderful and grand. But we have a hard time with Jesus being Lord. And yet, here's the reality. He's either Lord of all or not at all. He's either the Lord of all of your life or none of your life at all. There's no middle ground. Let's quit trying to act like there is, like somehow he's pleased with only 90% of you. His blood bought much more than just 90% of you. And if you're in here and you've only given him 90%, it's not condemnation, it's conviction. And it's his kindness that's gonna lead you to repentance. But let me just lovingly tell you, he's either Lord of all or not at all. So how do we submit to him? How does that play out in our daily lives? Living, I want to read a quote for us that I think really summarizes this, especially in light of the political climate going on. There's a hip-hop artist named KB, and he says this in a quote. I love it. If your wagon is hitched to Jesus, you will inevitably find yourself agreeing, intersecting, and aligning with all kinds of movements and political, quote, camps as you travel through this world. But rest assured, at some point, Jesus is going to complicate things and probably get you kicked out. This gets much better than this, y'all. There is perhaps only a single place where we are truly at home, and that is with God's people. The fact is that we all will never be conservative enough, liberal enough, or woke enough to truly be at home in any of these circles. You are going to get to a part about Jesus that might lead to your cancellation. This makes us the unsung assets of whatever space we find ourselves in because we can speak in and out of those camps with transcendental confidence. Our bias is to righteousness. I'm going to say that again. Our bias is to righteousness. We are nomads in this world, and that very fact makes us powerful forces in the movements that we ascribe to. So how do we submit to God? Make our bias righteousness. Righteousness. Man, what would it look like if the church wasn't just known for being biased to one camp or the other? Whatever the camps are, what if the church just became so obsessed with erring on the side of righteousness That wherever we saw injustice, wherever we saw brokenness, wherever we saw mess and and mistakes that we didn't try to go after and fix it with worldly solutions, but that we said, no, I'm gonna be biased on the side of righteousness, regardless of how other people receive that, regardless of if it gets me kicked out of the camp I solely pledged allegiance to for so long. What would it look like if you became biased towards righteousness? It's uncomfortable. It's gonna change a lot. It may make you shut up on social media. It may make you more active with your hands and feet in the world around you. Whatever it may look like for you, what is the Lord wanting you to do as you submit to him by being more biased towards righteousness? But check this out. Jesus rebuked his mom. His mom receives the rebuke and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And yet Jesus moves forward with a miracle. It's kind of interesting. Jesus basically tells his mom it's not time yet, but then still moves forward with it. Let's not get twisted. He's not submitting to his mom here as if his mom has ultimate authority. No, he's about to put on display, although it's not my time to die yet, I'm gonna show you what it's gonna look like when my time does come. And that's why this miracle is so incredible is because Jesus puts on display this foreshadowing, this prophetic declaration of what's gonna happen in a few weeks and months to come when he dies on the cross on our behalf. So let's take a look at the rest of this. It's meant to all point to the cross from this point forward. Now there were six stone water jars. There for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Jesus is the perfect purification. We see Jesus is the submissive son, but then we also see him as the perfect purification. Look at this story. We see that there's six stone jars for Jewish rites of cleansing. This is very significant. These stone jars were were actually very common at weddings, were common in Jewish culture because they were there to to wash utensils and wash people's hands to make them ceremonially pure and clean. That was the goal of those water jars. And this was to be representative of the Jewish customs and culture. Like you couldn't get more of a staple Jewish culture thing than these water jars of purification. This was an essential in their practices. And yet it's through this that Jesus performs his first miracle, he's trying to relate this stone jar and this water to the law, to the law. That may be a a normal phrase to you if you've been around Christianity for a while. If not, you're thinking like, what law? The state law, the the national law, judicial law, what what type of law? Well, it's the Old, Old Testament, Old Covenant law. And it's simply summarized this. I'm giving a broad stroke definition, but it's very intense and very descriptive. It's the guidelines that God has given his people to help them walk in obedience to him. That's, that's the summary of the law. It's these, these specific ways of walking out obedience to God. It's not something that we, it's so taboo often in Christianity, we make the law to be something negative. It was never meant to be negative. It was God's grace that helped us in the midst of our sins still have access to God. It's that simple. It's not irrelevant, it's very significant. And so those things were supposed to represent the Jewish law. And by obeying the law, you'd be clean and pure before God. But here, here's some of the problems with the law if I dare admit. One, it was temporary. The law would save you for a moment, but then you had to keep going back and back and back. And so that, that was the other problem, is you had to do it over and over and over and over and over again. You couldn't just wash your hands one time and move on. You had to keep coming and washing your hands again. You couldn't just kill one animal and be done. You had to kill, I mean, there was, Lord only knows how many animals killed in this process. Bloodshed. Because it was all meant to be temporary. And so that's what Jesus is saying to us is this water that are in these jars. And then we see what happens is that he turns that water into wine. He turns that water into wine and look at how subtle it is in the story. It's not like and then at this miraculous moment Jesus waved a wand and bam. It's not how it happens. In fact, many people didn't even realize it happened. It was so subtle. And notice he never touched the wine or the water. He, he stood back and he just told them, hey, draw it out. And when they drew it out, somehow in that process, the water became wine. The water was filled to the brim and they took it out and realized, oh my goodness, this, this isn't water, this is wine. Jesus took the water and transformed it into wine. What is the wine? It's the blood from his veins. It's his blood that was shed for us. He's trying to make a a testimony. He's trying to make a declaration that I'm gonna come and I'm gonna hang on a cross and I'm gonna drip every ounce of my blood out of my body to show you that I'm enough. To make you pure, to make you righteous, to make you holy once again. But notice that the water is transformed into wine. What did not happen is the water filled the top, we dumped the water out and then put wine in. Why is that important? The law is still relevant. The law is still important. We, we often say in Christianity, oh, we don't read the Old Testament. Don't worry about the law. Jesus comes in and he does a new thing. Yes, but he fulfills the old to make the new. It's through the water that the water becomes the wine. In other words, Jesus by his blood transforms the law to now be attainable through his blood. And so when he gives you the promised Holy Spirit within you, now you can fulfill the law. Did you know one of Holy Spirit's primary objectives in your life is to make sure that the law is being fulfilled within you? right here, right now, regardless of how you're feeling today. If Holy Spirit lives within you, the law is being fulfilled within you. Everything that, that, the, that the past people tried so hard to get, you now have, not by earning it, not because you deserved it, but because He paid for it with His blood. And the Holy Spirit fills you up to make it possible and attainable for you to fulfill the law. Why? Because His blood is enough. He's righteous, He's pure, and he's holy. Jesus is the perfect purification. On the cross, he shed his perfect, spotless, innocent blood, it was sinless. That's why you dying for the sins of the world is irrelevant, because your blood is not pure, but his blood is. It's permanent. Did you know the blood of Christ is not like the milk at the grocery store? It doesn't have an expiration date. All y'all rushed out yesterday, I know you, because I saw you there, because I was there too. And I'm looking like, okay, if we're stuck in this thing for another apocalypse, how long is this milk gonna last? The 13th, I I ain't got time for that. I need at least the 20th, come on. It's not how the blood of Christ works. It has no expiration date. It will not expire. It will not run out. It will not get to a point where, oh, 10 strikes you're out. Well, the blood covers you as long as you don't keep sinning. No, the whole point is that when you keep sinning because you're still under the flesh that you will be made righteous. But guess what? Because of the blood, you don't have to choose sin anymore. That's some good news today. Some of you feel like all you can choose in life is what God doesn't want for you. Some of you feel like all you can choose is sin. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you have power by the the spirit within you to say no to sin. So say no to sin. Fight, because the battle has already been won. You're not fighting for a victory, you're fighting from it. Because the blood is enough. It's enough. So quit trying to clean yourself up man, somebody needed that. Quit trying to clean yourself up. Some of y'all even driving in here somehow believe that, man, if I truck in through the snow, God will see me as more holy and all those people online aren't gonna get it as much as me. And so Jesus, I gotta please you by getting here. No, the blood is enough. Do you believe it? The blood is enough. It's not trying harder. It's not doing more. It's not praying enough. It's not going to more Bible studies. It's not showing up here. By the way, those are all incredible things to help point you to the fact that the blood is enough. So what I'm not saying is give up on everything and just focus on the blood. I'm saying as you focus on those other things, let it point you to the blood because it is enough. So here it is. Trust his blood. Trust his blood alone. Like will you trust today that his blood is enough? That's the scandalousness of Christianity. That's what makes the gospel so radically different is it means that you can actually stop trying so hard. And man, in our culture and other religions, it's just all about doing, 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 doing. Try harder, try harder, try harder. And Jesus says, guess what? I did it all. Now you're free to work with me, not for me. Jesus has no concern in you working for him. He doesn't need you. He can accomplish everything he wants to in the snap of a finger, but he wants you. He wants you to partner with him like a good father wants to partner with his son to do stuff around the house. It's not because he knows that when his son, uh, you know, follows him around, he's going to get more done. In fact, he knows I'm probably going to get less done. My son doesn't know what he's doing. That's not the point. The point is I get to be in fellowship with my kid. You know, Jesus is tickled to death when you hang out with him. Some of y'all don't believe that. The thing that God has grown me most in over this church planning process is that. And Jesus is just tickled to death to hang out with me. You know what makes me a better pastor, a better husband, a better father, a better man? You know what's going to make you a better Christian? Realizing the reality that God is pleased to hang out with you. I man, that changes everything. That builds up confidence. That builds up swagger. That will that, that, make you, man, tear down the walls of hell. Confident of it. That Jesus just wants to be with you. So much so that he was willing to give his blood for you to get you into his family. Because that's what's crazy about this, this blood, is that it covers us, it purchases us, and now because of that price has paid for your sins. You see, Jesus turning the water into wine addresses the um, not just the immediate issue of a lack of wine, he addresses the ultimate uh, important issue, the lack of communion with God. See why it was so significant that Jesus turned water into wine is because he's saying, I'm going to go after the issue of sin. I'm not going to brush it by. I'm not going to keep putting a stamp on it and coming back to it. I'm not going to fold it and move on to it later. No, I'm going to address the issue of sin full on. It's the beauty of the cross. Jesus' blood looks sin in the face and says, try me. Try me. Whatever you want to throw at me, devil, come on. Put your dukes up, bro, because I'm going to knock you out. I'm gonna give every drop of my blood and you're gonna bruise my heel, but I'm about to crush your head. He dies, he's buried. It seems like all hope hope is lost and yet he rises again and you know what he does is he gets out of the grave. Hey, death, where you at? Where's your sting? I've defanged you. You have nothing on me. And so all those people who you thought you had under your control are now mine. Come on, somebody. It's the beauty of his blood. It's a defangs death and, and takes away the sting of sin. Will you trust it? Because you see, Jesus turns the water into wine to show you that he can do all other kinds of things, too. He can turn whatever your issue is into whatever he wants it to be. Let me prove it. Brokenness, he turns it into beauty. You realize he needed the water to make it wine. Jesus didn't need to do that. Jesus is the God of the universe. He could do whatever he wants to do. Snap of a finger, wine, boom. Why did he do it this way? Because he wants to show you that out of whatever brokenness you have, I'm gonna make beauty. That's grace. This is grace on display for the world to see. Fear into faith, mourning into celebration, anxiety into peace, ash into beauty, bitterness into love, greed into giving, graves into gardens, hashtag shameless plug of that song. Lust into true satisfaction. Shame into courage, guilt into innocence. Somebody needs to hear that today. He takes your guilt. You were guilty. Sin is terrible. You've offended God. And yet his blood is enough. And you're now innocent and righteous and pure. Bondage into freedom, slavery into sonship. And you're, you belong to the family of God, former slave. Filth into purity. Ha <laughs> ha, And some of y'all think you're filthy. Some of you think you're nasty. Some of you think that if you cover yourself up externally so much so that no one can see the internal, that you'll be fine. But on the inside, you feel filthy. And Jesus in his blood says, you're pure. You're spotless. No shame. No guilt. Lack into abundance. They had no wine. He filled six jars. That was going to last them for a hot minute. Death into life. And if you're, if you're fixated on the water into wine, that's just the start. He's got so much more. Verse 9 and 10. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, see what happens is they, 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 they see the wine and say, oh, my goodness. And they taste of it like, oh, my goodness. And so they got to tell somebody. See, that's what happens when you taste the wine. Can't keep it to yourself? Got to tell somebody. So they see the wine, they taste it, and they go to the head of the party and say, yo, somehow we got some wine. And what's crazy, this is another little free gift for you. Check this out. Who did Jesus, his first miracle, reveal it to? Very first people. Exactly. We don't even know the servants. They don't have names. Why? Because when you feel like all you are is a servant, that's who Jesus is going to come to. Jesus doesn't come to the king. He doesn't come to the bridegroom. He doesn't come to the most important people in this story. He comes to the lowly, the broken, the one who probably thought they didn't matter, the one who had their hands and feet all kinds of dirty. That's who Jesus reveals the first miracle to. So if you feel like you're far out, man, I'm just telling you, Jesus is about to show up. That's what he does. And we see that they go to the head of the party and said, hey, look, this is crazy, we were out of wine and what they would do back in the day to keep the wine lasting longer is they would dilute it over time because, you know, as you drink more, you feel better. You know what I'm saying? And you wouldn't notice it as much. It's kind of what would happen. And so now they taste this wine, and it tastes strong and it tastes good and it tastes better. And they're like, wait a minute, this is the opposite of the way we typically do it. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. That when you used to put your faith in the law and practice the law, it would be kind of over time, it would fall out. And yet, My blood is strong, my blood is pure, and it lasts forever. It won't dilute, it won't go down. And so we see, as Jesus performs this miracle, he's the better bridegroom. He's the submissive son, he's the perfect purification, but he's the better bridegroom. Let's be honest, let's not point fingers, but let's be real, the bridegroom failed here. Come on, dude, wedding 101, you forgot the wine? And Jesus doesn't condemn him. In fact, he stands in the back, performs a miracle. And and as far as we know, they don't ever see, the bridegroom never knows who does this. The headmaster, he doesn't know who did this. Just a few servants and his disciples and his mom, a handful of people, see this little miracle go down. But he's trying to put on display for his disciples and his mom, I'm the better bridegroom. I can provide for my bride and I can provide better than the world can. Can can you just imagine? I don't care how you feel about alcohol, it's irrelevant. It's the best wine the world has ever tasted. The best wine the world has ever tasted in this moment. Think about how incredible that would have been in this context, that they get to taste this wine. And so although they didn't get to see necessarily who performed this miracle, everybody at the wedding got to benefit from it. It's the beauty of the grace of God, it's not just for you Man, you've experienced the grace of God on your life in such a way that other people should be reaping the benefits of it. That's how the kingdom works. It doesn't, it doesn't it's not stingy, it multiplies out. And we see Jesus is the better bridegroom because he saves the bridegroom from shame and from guilt and from embarrassment. Do you know Jesus came to save you from that? Some of us have been convinced that, okay, I get my ticket into heaven, but I gotta feel like crap on the way there. What? Don't lowball the blood of Christ like that. And his blood is enough. It's not to just get you into heaven. It's to get you guilt-free on your way there. It's to make you strong, to make you pure, to make you more like him on the way there. He's the better bridegroom. And if you want to check this wine out, if you want to see what it's testifying to, it's testifying that, man, the wine, in the Old Testament, this is crazy, wine was always a symbol of joy. Wine was always a symbol of peace and prosperity. So Jesus says, hey, you want some joy? You want some peace? You want some prosperity? You want some life? Find life in my life-giving death. Find life as I give my life for you, as I shed my blood for you. That's what Jesus is pointing to here. So how do we respond? Drink his better wine. Drink his better wine. It's it's really, it's like overly simple this morning, y'all. Drink the better wine. It would have been really stupid had they had this wine that Jesus provided and they're like, oh, that's cool. Well, let's keep going back to the water. That's foolish. Makes no sense. And yet if we're honest, this is what we do in our lives all the time. I know Jesus has made, it, made me righteous. He's given me his blood, but I'm gonna keep going back to the water that still doesn't satisfy me. And Jesus is saying to us this morning, just drink the wine. See, see, last week, Pastor Phil, man, killed it. Killed it. And one of the things Pastor Phil said was this. He said, man, in order to follow Jesus, you're going to have to give up some certain things. That's incredible. It's amazing. And in this context, that's the, the weaker wine. The weaker wine. See, in order for them to celebrate this true, true wine, they couldn't go back to the other stuff. For us, to, in, order, in order to really celebrate the blood of Christ, we have to keep running back or not running back to the old wine. And then as I was thinking about this text and I was thinking, all right, what's the practical application here? The first thing I landed on was this, stop drinking the other wine. And Jesus said, that's not it. like, what? What do you mean, Jesus? Stop drinking the other wine. That's gotta be it. He's like, no, I have something better for you. Drink the actual wine I provided. See, don't miss this. Some of us have gotten so focused on not drinking the other wine, whatever that is for you not going back to the old way of living. Some of us have gotten so focused on not sinning that we haven't indulged in the blood of Christ. And some of us are so frustrated because we keep focusing on our sin as if that gives us power to overcome it. That's never the antidote for sin. It's not focus on it more. It's not try harder. It's not beat yourself up. No, it's, it's focus on Christ. You, you want to have victory over sin, fall in love with Jesus. There's no formula other than that. And the problem is we try to make it a formula and that's why it doesn't work. And fall in love with Jesus and that'll help you overcome sin. And that's his point. Don't just not drink the other wine, drink his better wine. Because when you get a taste of it, nothing else satisfies. When you taste of the blood of Christ, pornography doesn't matter anymore. Now, when you you taste of the blood of Christ, lying is not the better way. Man, when you chased of the blood of Christ, patience is what's going to come out of you because anger doesn't have a place in your life anymore. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know this, that the blood of Christ is better because Jesus is the better bridegroom. So here's the question for us this morning. Have you trusted in the saving blood of Jesus? Have you trusted in the saving blood of Jesus? I don't want to make the mistake this morning to assume all of y'all are Christians. That's not a condemnation, that's an invitation right now. And if you've never drank of the blood of Christ, that's what's offering, that's the offering on the table for you this morning. To believe in him. Man, man, the last part of this text tells us this. I'm gonna kind of summarize it this way. It says that Jesus manifested his glory. And what did the disciples do? Believe in him. Believe in him. What does it mean to believe in him? I hope this blows your mind. To believe in him is this. To transfer absolute trust from yourself to another. To transfer absolute trust from yourself to another. It's not intellectual assent. It's not thinking harder. It's like actually just surrendering yourself to someone bigger and better and more grand than you. And his name is Jesus. So have you done that? If not, Jesus is calling you to do it today. Don't wait. And don't wait till you have it all figured out. Don't wait till you have all the answers. Will you put your trust in him today? If you've never done that before, I believe right now, the spirit of God is calling some of you to surrender your life to Jesus for the very first time. And his arms are strong. They will hold you up. His heart is tender and kind. It will, it will meet you in the midst of your mess. He will love you out of your sin. It's how he rolls. Will you trust in him today? And man, for those of us in the room who have trusted in him today, what do you need to give up to him? And really, here's the more important question. When's the last time you enjoyed him? Man, some of us are, are content with being miserable Christians. <laughs> and God just has so much more. He just has so much more. He doesn't want you to walk around all mopey. Man, he saved you so you could enjoy him. When's the last time you drank of the better wine? When's the last time you looked at Jesus and said, man, you're enough? Like, like if he's all you get this morning, is that enough? If you get nothing else today, if your spouse disappoints you, if your kids drive you nuts, if you walk out of here and you feel like the snow is just getting to your bones, if you feel like someone in here is already making you angry, if you're, fr- whatever it is, If all you get is Jesus, is that enough? When's the last time you tasted of the good wine? When's the last time you celebrated him? When's the last time you sang for him? When's the last time you sang to him? Now, what would it look like if we became a group of people in this room who didn't just try to sing in the light of what everyone else thought, but we just sang to the audience of one? Can we try that today? Just to sing to the audience of one, to just gaze upon his beauty. there's the old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of his glorious grace. The joy and peace are there for you to enjoy today, church. They're yours. They're yours. They're in your lap where you taste of them because it's stronger and it's better. You know, this wine is not bottom shelf. and it does no good on the shelf. Man, some of us believe that that wine is bottom shelf wine, and therefore we've left it on the shelf. And Jesus is saying, I got top dollar stuff. Take it off the shelf and enjoy it. Taste and see that I am good. Will you enjoy him today? Because he wants to show his glory to you in overwhelming grace by being the submissive son of God but being the perfect purification and by being the better bridegroom, will you believe in him today? At this time, we're going to take communion together. That's what a better way to enjoy. It's actually look at the body of Christ and his blood. If you don't have communion elements, would you put your hand up? We're going to have some people come around and hand out those elements to you. Just keep your hands up in the air. While those elements are going around, I want to cover a few things real quick. This week's focus. Here's here's three things that we can practically do this week. Every morning you wake up, tell Jesus this, today I want to do whatever you ask me. That's dangerous, y'all. If your prayer life this week just looked like this, I promise you your life will be altered. Before your feet hit the floor in the morning, say, Jesus, I'm going to do whatever you want. Thank him every day that his blood is enough. Fixate your eyes on the blood of Jesus every day. And then take communion with your family and your friends outside of this time today. And get some people in in your home, maybe be socially distanced, whatever, you know, tickles your fancy, I don't care how you do it. Virtual, that's cool too. Man, take communion with some believers this week outside of just this context to get your eyes fixed on the cross. See, here's why communion is so special. It's not a Monday thing. We don't wanna put too much emphasis on it. Like it's actually the the blood of Christ in his body because that's not what it is. It's a symbol. But we don't want to downplay it either. See, see, the blood of Christ was shed for us and his body was broken for us. Jesus, the night of his death is also foreshadowing the same way he turned the water into wine. He's saying, hey, I'm about to do something that's going to rock the world forever. He was hanging out with his best friends, with his disciples. And, and he said to them, hey, this is my body broken for you. And he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And then he said, hey, this is my blood that was shed for you or that's gonna be shed for you. And he took a cup of wine and he he drank of it. And he said, this is the the blood of my new covenant symbolizing the old law. I'm about to fulfill it with my blood. And so I just wanna give you a few moments before we take of this together to think on that, to let the seriousness of the cross bear weight on your soul, that you would see that your sin was that bad and his cross was that good. So just take a few moments, close your eyes, bow your heads, do whatever you need to do. Just take a few moments and dwell on the body and blood of Jesus. At this time, you can go ahead and open up the bread. And remember that on the cross, Jesus' body was broken. It was beaten. It was scarred. And his hands and feet had nails pierced through them. And it was broken for you. The Bible tells us that by his stripes, we Are healed. You see, church, it's the body of Christ broken that brings our healing. Take this in remembrance of Him. You can go ahead and open the juice. I want you to think about that day. A wedding at Cana and the people who got it, it was very few but some of them got it to whatever extent they could understanding this, that, that man that Jesus is here to do something new that Jesus is here stepping on the scene to be the hope of the world in a way that we're not even ready for and he's proclaiming he's foreshadowing, prophesying what would come, my blood speaks a better word My blood speaks a better word. My blood takes your guilt and makes you pure. My blood takes your filth and makes you righteous. My blood takes your brokenness and makes you beautiful. So as you drink of the the wine today, of the blood of the new covenant, do it in remembrance of him. Jesus, we thank you. Your blood is enough. It's strong. It's pure. It goes deep and meets us in our mess. It's not holding out on us. It's not selling us short. It's not gonna do what the other wine has done, which is over and under-deliver. No, Jesus, you overdeliver every single time. And we just repent for trying other weaker wine. We repent for going back to the wells that have dried up. We repent for going after things that aren't good for us. In fact, we repent for going to your blood and other things as well. We testify today, Jesus, your blood is enough. And we just wanna enjoy you today. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would just put something inside of us right now, that you would stir something up that we couldn't leave this place without singing and dancing today that we would feel your presence. God, not an emotional high, but a true reality of who we are in light of who you actually are. The submissive son, the pure, perfect purification. God, that is who you are and you're the better bridegroom. And you've ushered in a wedding. And one day you're going to take us home and we're going to party for all of eternity. Let us get a foretaste today. Let us taste and see that you are good here and now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand up. I want, you to, 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 I want to invite you to enjoy the wine today. We're gonna to sing a song that reminds us of the beauty of his blood and the beauty of his body. And it's gonna tell you, look at him, look at him. Fixate on his blood, fixate on his body, broken for you and become undone. Let's celebrate church.
0: We hope you enjoyed this message. You can find more like it on our website under sermons. To keep up to date with our sermon series, hit the subscribe button in your podcast host and follow our social media pages. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury on the platform of your choice. If you're looking to connect with us further, then you can email us at connect at gfcshrewsbury.org. We will be back next week with another message. We hope to see you again soon.